everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul, and I am here once again with my friend and I guess musical mentor is the way that I'll describe it right now. Uh, Mark Tremalia, all the way from all the way from LA. Hey, Mark, how are you, mentor? My hey, mentor, Paul. man. Good, man. <laughs> Good brother, how you doing? <laughs> hey, you're sounding great. So I'll take it because I'm telling you, I hear improvements like every time we jam. It is it is shocking that I'm getting better. It's hard to imagine like a 50 year old can get better at anything, but. Uh, it's possible. So everybody out there, here's here's your moment of positivity. If you take lessons from Mark Tremalia, you will get better. It's guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely it. It's not that you play all the time and have 10 bands. And <laughs> oh, that's um, awesome. Thank you. Uh, so let's get started with your new guitar. So you got this this old harmony from the 60s that you're, you're really into right now. And... What I want to know is, back in the day, you had to pawn stuff to to eat or live, right? And thank you for reminding me. <laughs> and uh, and of course, you know, we've already talked about this. You you you've tried to get stuff back in the past, but you haven't. Um, what's when when you're when you're trying to make it as a musician when you're younger? Is is there ever a long-term plan, especially when it comes to your gear? Do you think this is the stuff that I have now, but once I make it, I'm going to get way better stuff. I'm going to get a 58 Les Paul and everything is going to be great. Or, you know, what are you thinking? Because you're in it. These are your tools, right? This, these are your hammers or your saws. Um, right. And so how are you viewing your gear when you're a young guy having to pawn stuff? Um, that's a great Great question, because I think, and I think it's true for a lot of people, is we just get what we get initially, and we kind of just stick with that, you know, and some of us get lucky and get a really great guitar, some of us just kind of keep going through, and I, I think I was searching for a lot of years, you know, I think the first guitar that I really had valued was the Strat that my friend Tony Botticello loaned me, it was like his uncle's, and it was like a 65, and, you know, out, that was one that I very much treasured and then i'm out on the road in houston texas and it gets stolen and you know it's like the so that was the first time it was ever like oh my god i can't believe you know things like this can happen um you know and then i yeah i, I was i was always kind of particular about pedals and amps you know but again when money got tight i did always have friends that said you know i'll loan you my amp so a lot of times and I think this is unfortunately true of a lot of like poor musicians, other than the fact that we have great friends, like a lot of times we'll get rid of our gear. I mean, I know some great guitar players back then that were just borrowing gear to get on stage and play. You know, I, I did a whole Bang Tango tour with Brian Forsyth from Kicks. He gave me his uh, Les Paul to use because I needed a Paul for that and I couldn't find one. I didn't have one. I had a bunch of tellies. I was endorsed by Washburn and they were giving me tellies and strats and it wasn't going to work because <laughs> Bang Tank was switching to a one guitar band and I needed a Paul and Brian was like, yeah, he's like, Brian's like, I got a bunch of guitars. What do you need? And I'm like, it's like an old Les Paul. He comes over, he gives me a 1970 Les Paul, you know, he's like, I'll let you know when I need it back. I'm like, okay, great. You know, and same tour. 
I had a nice, an old Marshall head that I really liked, and I ran it with a pedal board that I liked, but I didn't have a cab, and John Karabi loaned me a cab. So the tour we opened for Enough's Enough and uh, the Bullet Boys, I, I used uh, John Karabi's guitar cab and Brian Forsyth's Les Paul for the entire tour, you know? So And I, I had my Washburn as backup, so I had other guitars out with me, but, you know, that's that's how that was now. I'm talking a lot and said all that, but I'll say all that to say this. So when I quit Bang Tango, I realized the value of, of my guitars and instruments and started really buying stuff that I knew I needed, like having a Strat, having a, a, a Les Paul, having an SG, falling in love with Les Pauls and buying a second, you know, like things like that. And that's where I really amounted my collection. And, you know, the funny thing is it kind of went hand in hand with me having more success in what I was doing. That's when I was playing with the brothers Johnson and then, you know, Michael DeBar and then the other things that I, I, I've done, you know, with little Caesar and now the Cruzados and stuff. And it's like, and, you know, I look and I, I it cracks me up. I'm showing Paul right now, but it's like, I have a, a pretty nice collection of amps and, and guitars and I really I try to take care of them. And, and I know what sounds good for what job, you know, and that's, that's what it comes down to. Right. So let's talk about the the harmony a little bit here. So you were looking, we talked a little bit about it in the last episode, but were you looking for a particular flavor? Did you feel like you needed this particular hammer for whatever nails you were trying to pound in to continue to overuse that analogy? Um, <laughs> is that, so why, why that harmony? Why, what were you hoping to gain from that? I guess is the question. When I, when I go to the toolbox, I wanted to be able to pull out a specific sound. <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, you know, I, I heard, like I said, Scott Sherrard playing it, and it sounded amazing. And with the Cruzados, there's stuff that were going for a real, like, garagey sound, like Sonics, you know, Blasters, that kind of, like, real, like... Um, early era rock and roll, but more gritty, you know, and, and the foil pickups that are in a 69 harmony just sound amazing. And I knew the Bobcat was what I wanted. So I just, from what I'd heard somebody playing who I know was a great player, I knew it was, and, and it sounded great coming out of what he was doing. So I knew it was going to be the sound that I needed. And we rehearsed last night with, it was the first time I got to play it live. I, I did use it in the video, but I played it live last night and man, it sounds it sounds better than I expected. It was almost frightening. It sounded so like spot on to what I wanted. <laughs> that is, that is super, super great. I, you know, I think I can speak for a lot of people when, when I say it's going to be great to, to see Crusados sort of rising up again and, and going out and doing some shows. So I think that'll be, that'll be really fun. Um, switching gear slightly here, still talking about gear in, in your, in the old days. Uh, I know that you guys rehearsed in your apartment, like you set up a bedroom and you rehearsed. Was that a common thing or were bands like renting rehearsal spaces? I think bands were renting rehearsal spaces <laughs> and we were so green from Connecticut and we all rehearsed, you know, in our family homes, basically, you know, we rehearsed in my basement with John's garage the drummer's garage we rehearsed i don't think we've ever rehearsed in the bass force but we've all like rehearsed in different spots so when we got out there we were just like well this is what you do john would set up his drums and he practiced for like three hours during the day you know i mean the neighbors must have like hated us so much <laughs> that has got to be true it's shocking that you didn't get kicked out honestly 
you know, the landlord was super fucking cool. And as long as we had a rent check, he didn't give two shits. He never <laughs> once said anything to us about the noise. I don't think I, 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 I should take that back because right when we, I think, gave our notice that we were going to all have to move out because some of the guys were moving home and other guys had other stuff going on. Cause there was a bunch of us living there at that point. That, that was the first time he was like, came over and knocked on our door. I was like, yeah, you can't play. You can't do that. <laughs> but I, I could hear it like a block away. I remember like the other band was rehearsing one day and I was walking up the street and I'm like, what is that racket? <laughs> and I got closer. And I'm like, Oh, that's, the <laughs> that's my apartment. <laughs> So what was the first band where you went and rented a rehearsal space? That would actually be Mariah's next incarnation. Okay. So when basically everybody went back, the singer decided to move to Orange County and he thought, I'll still play with you guys, but I'm just don't want to be in Hollywood anymore. I hate it there. And the drummer. So the three of us, we got this bass player that I was working with named Paul Barrett. We called him Sharky because he was like, a shark on the phone. He could, he, he was, he was the salesman, top sales guy. And he had the gift gab, but anyways, he, uh, he found this rehearsal space in Vernon, California. Lovely, lovely area. <laughs> I'm being very sarcastic. It's a super like industrial area. And it's known for one thing. It's slaughterhouses. And there's Whoa. two nights a week where it, is the worst smell you ever want to smell in your life. And of course, guess what? Two nights a week, we'd always rehearse because the only nights you could drive up from Orange County to meet, at the, meet us at this rehearsal space were those nights. Now, these were studios became kind of famous because uh, Tool rehearsed there and Rage Against the Machine rehearsed there and the Chili Peppers rehearsed there. So everybody kind of knew it. It's, it's, I think it's long closed down now, but man, everybody would talk about that. You'd come down and be like, oh my God, how bad is that smell? Let's just burn some incense, like burn a whole pack. <laughs> were these rooms like set up to be rehearsal rooms or? Yes. Okay. No, okay. 100%. Yeah. No, it was, you know, the most famous one in Hollywood was probably Hollywood and Western. That was, uh, there was a billiards room down below and up top was old apartments that they basically reconstructed and made into rehearsal studios. And they let bands basically live there, play there and do everything there. Pretty Boy Floyd, they were one of the bands that lived there and they used to have infamous parties there. First time I ever saw Axl Rose in person was standing outside of the billiards at a Pretty Boy Floyd party. And he came walking in, he had on a fur coat with like the military hat and he had two of the prettiest girls I my 19 year old ass ever saw in my life on each arm. And I was like, Oh my, and he just walked right by me and I was like, Oh my God, Axel, Holy crap. <laughs> like he was just a rock star, you know? And so that, that, those were the kind of parties that happened at, at Hollywood and Western. How, how was, does one live in a rehearsal studio is are all of the amenities that you need there? Oh, help. Well, there's a bathroom and a lot of them would get, you know, uh, like a, like a, a burner, you know, those burners hot, hot, that you can get right. for your hot, yeah, hot, hot plate, plate, hot and, plate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hot plate and, uh, and a fridge. So they had that and a microwave. Some of them, you know, the guys who were rich would have a microwave, <laughs> like pretty boy Floyd, you know, and, and basically what they do, Paul, is they'd have like, sometimes they put up partitions. Some of the guys were like good construction guys and they would actually build like bunk beds and put like partitions and like, it was pretty cool. The Floyd, they had a big room and, um, Vinny lived there and the drummer lived there, uh, Carrie until he got another, he got a girlfriend that lived at the apartment complex I was living at. And then he, he, he came there and was living there. And, um, 
And so, yeah, he had it all set up. So I used to skateboard because I only lived down Hollywood Boulevard from Western. So I'd skateboard up Hollywood Boulevard and meet Vinny and we'd like skate and hang out and play music. And they'd have parties all the time because Pretty Boy Floyd was pretty big in the local scene. And so it was just it was cool. And there was a lot of other cool bands in there. I mean, it was it was it was old Hollywood. It was this crazy (laughs) billiards room down below where like the the Cretans from Hollywood would hang out and then you take the elevator up to the studios and, you know, you could see, you know, Taz on one floor and, and pretty boy Floyd on another and LA guns and another. And, you know, it was like, there was, there was a lot of bands in there. The, so what I wanted to get to then was you talked about that strat being stolen on the road and, and that's a pretty, unfortunately, I think for smaller, even mid-level bands, um, that can be a problem because it's hard to keep track of everything when there's a million things going on. If you have roadies, then it's not such an issue, but, but that's a, a different level. Um, so when we're talking about rehearsal spaces, was there everybody struggling for money? So was there a lot of, was there any like thieving going on? Did you see your gear suddenly in someone else's hand ever? No, no, I, I've, I've, I've been fairly lucky that way, knock on wood, you know. Um, and, and, you know, like the studio we're at now has four locks on the door and then you have to get through a security gate and then another gate with a key and then one with a keypad. So there's a lot of, you know, it'd have to be an inside job and there's cameras in the hallway. So I think they're, they're pretty secure, at least in the, re- the recording studios and uh, rehearsal studios. Um, you know, I always worry live, you know, and that's usually why I just bring one guitar because I'll change strings. I'm pretty confident if I needed to change strings on stage, I can, I can do it in under a minute. I'm pretty, pretty fast with it. So I, 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 I hate bringing multiple guitars, but like with the Cruzados, I got to bring three. So that means like, I'm going to have to sit by three guitars all night and carry them with me. And, you know, and it's like, like when we went on the road to the South, Randy, the other guitar player, like, I don't think he ever took his guitar off his back. You know, we'd go into a restaurant and it didn't matter if it was five star or a Burger King. His guitar was sitting right next to him everywhere we went, you know, never left it in the hotel room. You know, wherever he went, his guitar went with him. Hey, let's go check out the city. OK, cool. Guitar backpack. I'm like, all right, cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. So speaking of that, are you hard case or soft case guy? They they each have their advantages, right? But it's easier to carry a soft case for sure. Uh, locally, 100% soft case. When I go on the road because of flying and if, if they have to do a gate check or which, you know, I try to carry it on the plane. And usually I just try, I knock on wood on this. I usually have pretty good luck with that. And I've had to gate check a few times, but they've always been really cool where I, I get off the plane and they're like waiting for me with the guitar. Um, so, you know, but I always try to just be as nice as possible to everybody as I'm getting on. And I've been lucky where they'll take it and they'll put it in like their little storage area, like on the plane where they can put their mm-hmm. suitcases and stuff. So, um, but going to Europe, I, I just know a lot of times it's going to end up getting checked or at least like, I don't know, you know, and it's going to be riding in a van. So like, it's always hard cases, like if I'm doing touring. So you always, you just said you always try to be nice. I mean, I honestly, I can't imagine you not being the nicest guy in the world. That, that is so hard to imagine. And now that I say that out loud, I think, 
myself and all of the people that have been listening to this podcast would love to see you just in a pure rock star moment, a pure, don't you know I'm Marky T from LA? We all want to see that. Oh, that, that just makes my skin crawl thinking about that. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I remember like I was playing with Barry Oakley Jr. and he used to talk about, he's one of those, don't you know who I think I am guys? And I always love that. <laughs> like that always stuck. <laughs> one one last thing while we're talking about the rehearsal rooms uh so you you mentioned a little bit about what you're doing now with crusados and little caesar so are you, is there like an industry in la for that type of facility like someone okay. owns well, a whole bunch of rehearsal spaces and they're all pro and whatever not someone there's a lot of them okay. there's yeah i mean i can think of 10 off the top of my head you know and uh um yeah i mean yeah, it's, it's just there's there's the need for it because a lot of bands do pre-production out here, too. So there's like Third Encore, there's Mates, there's um, Amp, there's just a, a ton of them, West L.A. Studios, and they all... And, and, you know, there's still those hourly places, too. I don't know if they have those in Pittsburgh or anywhere else, but, like, basically, there's a bunch of studios that aren't lockouts, and they have the gear in there already. They'll have a drum set, they'll have, like, a half stack and a combo amp and a bass amp and then you can go in there and not bring your gear and pay for three hours and jam you know and that's yeah. that was what we were doing for a little while with uh with um little caesar was we were just going in and paying for a couple hours to play but now we have a lockout again you know and, and same thing like where we have the lockout with uh disreputable few uncle, uncle Dwayne's band guys that is uh also it's a lockout in the front and in the back is four hourly studios so sometimes, you know, we want to stretch out and be loud. We'll rent one of the back rooms rather than just staying in our little studio. Okay. And what about these places where Lady Gaga is going to go to do her entire, practice her entire production with pyro and everything? Are these these places? That's Third Encore. Yeah. Okay. Third Encore has a huge stage. That's where the Stones go. Like when, like I've actually driven outside and sat in the parking lot to listen to the Stones just because I knew they were rehearsing there because like, when somebody big is getting ready to go on the road, that's usually the spot they're going to be at. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's where they do it. I mean, the other thing is that's that like Lady Gaga, it's like she'll rehearse on the big stage and third encore. But then when they actually do pre-production, usually what the biggest artists do, Paul, is they rent out the Staples Center or the sports arena. Oh, really? Wow. Or, yeah, they'll rent it out for a week and that's where they practice all their lighting you know, the light, they call them lighting gags and then, you know, uh, explosions and things like that, you know, and they'll work out all the audio for an arena and then they're, they're set to go. And a lot of times a band will even book it. So that's where their first show is going to be. But a lot of times they don't too. A lot of times they rehearse. I actually, um, my friend DJ Ashbo was playing in Guns N' Roses and I got to go down to the sports arena when they were doing their pre-production for the tour and Axel didn't show up. I, what they did was, believe it or not, was they... <laughs> The whole band did the full show without a singer and it's videoed and it's sent to Axel and he gives them notes and then they rehearse whatever the next time. And then he comes the day before and does one rehearsal with them and then goes on the road. At least wow. that's how he did it in like 2005 or whatever when they had, they had three guitar players at that point. Is it normal for bands to say rent the Presidio because they want to rehearse somewhere like Metallica did in some kind of monster? Um, this seems like, of course, Metallica is huge, but I mean, that's so like next level that it's hard to even imagine. 
I mean, if you have the money and you can do it, it's great, you know, but most of us mere mortals are just wanting to play music, you know, if we can. So I'll take a 12 by 12 rehearsal studio. <laughs> Not <laughs> so let's let's finish up this episode by talking about an experience I think we haven't talked about thus far, and that is is Bob Weir. Uh, so you had the opportunity to to back up Bob Weir. I've definitely seen some video and and some uh, photographs of that. So so first of all, is Bob Weir a normal dude? Because he doesn't seem to be. He's completely normal. Um, except when you're playing music. There's something otherworldly <laughs> about what's going on, some telepathy he's sending out of his brain. But I mean, you know, like the first time I met him, he walked right up to me without even a hesitation and was like, hey, I'm Bobby. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I know who you are, but I didn't say that, of course. I'm like, hey, I'm Mark, you know, nice to meet you. He's like, I'm really looking forward to playing. This is going to be great. And we talked about what we were going to do and what songs we were doing. And, you know, he's he's pretty communicative when it comes to playing music, you know, he'll give you a look or a nod, you know, like fill it up, play some riffs or, you know, we'll jam back and forth. And, you know, he's not afraid to yell out, you know, a minor or whatever, you know, and just, you, you kind of follow where it's going and getting to play, you know, those old dead classics with him was, was really kind of fun. Even doing like touch of gray was kind of fun. You know, I mean, he's just, he's got this, this crazy, this ability to just play something different every time. And it's all so neat and creative. And it's like, you can almost get lost watching him, but it's so fun interacting with him that you just can't stop playing. You know, it's, it's, it's really cool. What were the circumstances? Why, why were you playing with him? Uh, Matt Sorum, Matt, uh, Matt was going to back him and Matt wanted to put a band together and he didn't feel comfortable asking his usual guys. Um, cause he didn't feel like they were the type of guys that could play dead type of stuff. So he's got, you know, the Kings of chaos, like that, those kind of guys, he just, they're more rock and roll. And he knew Bobby was, was more jammy, you know? So he, he got my band, basically the uncle, uncle Dwayne's band, disreputable few and, did the double drummer, Matt and Dan both played. And uh, Randy played guitar, I played guitar, Paul played bass, Bob played guitar, and uh, it was it was a blast. It was in Anaheim. Okay, so was it this part of NAM or, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, uh, it was for uh, D'Angelico Guitars. So he had a new, like, hollow body coming out. We all played as hollow bodies. Okay. Oh, so you, yeah. they gave you, D'Angelico gave you a guitar to play? Yeah, yeah, they were like, you're all going to play this guitar. So we all played the same guitar, but we all made it sound different. Well, <laughs> we used cool. super, super amps too, but I use my pedal board and my little my little pedal always kind of gives me my sound no matter what the amp is like because I know how to just kind of dial what I think I need out of it. And uh, did did Bob choose the songs that you were playing or did he ask, what, what do you guys want to play? Or did he just say, we're playing we're playing these? No, we had a, I think it was a 16 song set list that he sent to us. So we knew what we were playing, what we had to learn. And he was even happy. A few of them, he forgot. He told us to, to learn. He was like, oh, Jack Straw, oh, that's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> so was, that was cool. And, you know, learning those songs was, was definitely fun. We did a bunch of rehearsals, getting ready for it. And those all 
it was just a blast, you know, and, and the music is always a little different every time, like it should be, you know, it's like, he's very, very organic in his playing. And, uh, you just kind of go with that rhythm, you know, it's always got a bounce to it, but you just don't always know, you know, what the tempo is going to be, or maybe what the pace or the push is going to be, you know, so it changes it a little bit every time, but it's what makes it exciting and makes it fun to, express yourself soloing or, you know, sing harmony with them or, or whatever. You just don't know what the soup is going to be until right. the song starts. <laughs> when you rehearsed, was there a different feeling to when you actually did the show? Because oftentimes the show has just a different energy, right? It's, it's more energy. Yes. You, you feel cooler about it. Um, but when, so how many times did you rehearse and what was the difference between rehearsing with him? And as you got comfortable, what was different to the show? Oh, well, we, we actually never rehearsed with him. Oh. <laughs> we rehearsed as a band. We did probably 12 to 14 rehearsals as a band. And then we did we did a sound check with him where we played for probably an hour and a half. We kind of like touched on everything and anything he thought would be like a tight ending is needed here. This is needed here. He just told us. Wow. He was like, okay, we'll remember that. The end of the song is like this. This part of the song is like this. Okay, you know, and most of the stuff, I mean he basically he showed up and we were already kind of jamming some stuff when he walked right up to me and, and like introduced himself and he put on a guitar and started playing and we finished and he's like, well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> that was literally the first thing he said. So we were like, I remember Paul and I turned to each other going, okay, so we're, we're doing something right. Because, you know, you kind of want Bob to end a song and not go, okay, what you need to do. And you, he, first thing he said was, this is going to be fun. We were like, all right. <laughs> and did you, did, was there a backstage? Did you hang out yes. with him before did, and yeah. after and, and all of that sort of stuff? I did. I did. I talked to him a whole bunch, you know, he's a super cool guy. And he was telling me a lot of old stories about the dead. And at the time, as he said, he goes, Marty's making a movie about my band right now. And I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah. Uh, he goes, uh, it's, it's going to be really neat, you know, because it's our whole history and Marty does great stuff. And I'm like, Marty? And he goes, oh, Martin Scorsese? And I'm like, oh, oh, Marty. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And then, you know, he was just, we talked about music a, a whole bunch. We talked about guitars and uh, Robert Randolph was there. He sat in with us and Robert was really cool. And he actually hopped in the room and we all kind of just rapped out about music and our passion for it and different artists and things. And it was, it's a really cool couple hours. And then, for, then Bob goes, okay, I got to go. They told me my, my ride's ready. And I'm like, okay. And he walks, you know, I say bye to him and everything. And, um, his, his tech guy walks up. He goes, you know what his ride is, right? I go, what? He goes, he's got a jet on the runway. And he goes, he's just flying back home to Marin tonight. He goes, he'll be in bed in eight minutes. I go, are you serious? I go, it's going to take me more than that to get home. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> that is uh that is pretty amazing uh so nam you know for a guy like me an outsider nam always seems super exciting um but i know for a lot of guys like you um or guys who have been to nam a lot of times it's just a lot of people and it's not not fun but right. this kind of thing probably wouldn't happen without nam right you need uh, nam yeah. to to create the circumstances to have a sh cool show like this right 
In a way, yeah. I mean, they still do stuff like this, you know, like Gibson will have a release party out here in L.A. somewhere and they'll do a concert, you know, similar to like what we did at NAMM. But NAMM is special because people come out for it. So there is, you know, a million friggin' people walking around Anaheim. And, you know, if you can go see Bob Weir play in a, you know, in a room with 500 people, it's like, holy cow, we'll just cram in that room. This will be great, you know? And yeah. God, we had the fire marshal there freaking out. And it was just like, <laughs> it was pretty cool. So how long did you have to hang around afterwards before you could, like, leave? Um, do you oh, have to wait until everybody's gone or, you know, is it hard to get your gear or whatever? Uh, well, we played at night, so okay. we went on at like seven and we played until like the basic curfew, which I think was like 10 or 10 30. Okay. And then, you know, we were actually, because I mean, who the hell are we? We just walked out and I knew some people who were there. So I just ended up talking to some people out there for a little bit. And then I went back and just hung out with Bob for another hour or two. And then he was his ride was there. So he split, I grabbed my gear and <laughs> said bye to some people. And that was that, you know, and you did not very, take your jet home. I did not take my jet home. No, I took the hour and a half ride home in my car. <laughs> Halfway home. I'm thinking Bob's probably in bed already. <laughs> uh, it was a pretty uh, magical night though. It was like, it was everything you'd want it to be. Like the music all felt good. There was no train wrecks and, you know, Robert Randolph was really cool. He and I had a fun time. Um, basically, what Bob wanted to do to start the show was start out as a three-piece. He So he had Randy play electric, Bob played acoustic, Paul played bass, and Dan obviously was on drums by himself. And uh, he did three songs uh, broken down like that off his solo acoustic record. And then I came out with Sorum, and we did like three electric songs. We did Dark Star, famous dead song, where Bob started with the electric and as we jam, I mean the acoustic, and as we jam more, he put on the electric. So halfway through that Dark Star song, he was playing an electric guitar. And then by then we, we went off. And then we uh, did Come Together, and we had Skunk Baxter and Robert Randolph come up for that. And then Robert Randolph stayed up for Touch of Grey. Cool. Cool. That's and, really, really, really... Uh... Hard to hard to think about for a mere mortal that stuff like that can can happen. So it's it's definitely cool. Yeah. All right, cool. Thanks, Mark. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks to everyone who's listening and supporting the podcast. It is very much appreciated. Please tell your friends about us. And I would like to thank my friend and mentor, Mark Tremalia, for for being here once again. Thanks, buddy. Much appreciated. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's always great being here. And thanks for everybody listening. That's awesome that you do. Man.